Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. What does the Bible mean when it says that we are made in the image of God? And what are some things you believe to be entailed by that? Thank you, Zach Harris. Um, well, th- th- now the problem with the image of God stuff is that people tend to um, put all their th- favorite theological baggage there because of ambiguity. So I have to be self-consciously aware when I try to understand what it means. But the way I get there... so. If you know, there, there's some reference to this sort of thing in Acts chapter 17 as well, when Paul's making the case that why are you worshiping idols which you made? Um, God is not going to be like these gold and silver idols that you made. Isn't it more likely that he's like you, like a person? Obviously, far greater than us, but a person. Um, and um, so, so that so I think it's important we're made in his image. Right, we know that from Genesis one. So the, the thing is to figure out what the image of God is. I think a good way to start, beyond the what the detail we get from Scripture itself, is to say, um, okay, it's a way. It's a way that we and God are alike, and that we're not like the animals, and God's not like the animals. So what are those things that make that that, that we're shared between us and God or similar that the animals don't have? And you come up with a you know a reasonable list. You have intelligence. Uh, now, obviously, animals have intelligence to varying degrees, but we have a mind that can be renewed for one thing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, be not conformed to this world, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Animals can't have the renewed mind. On top of that, we just have a far greater intelligence than animals. So that's one thing. We have this ability to reason, we could say, in, in a high way. And then second, we have an ability to be, we have creativity. That's an important part of that. Um, animals, I guess, can be creative. They, there was a Time magazine cover once that had, where they, they'd given these monkeys paint, and these monkeys had painted pictures. Um, and you could call that art, I suppose, insofar as the monkey um, chose which paint color they were going to use. But uh, did, was the monkey aware that it was making some kind of art? I, I can't say that they were. So we have this creativity that I think is pretty important. Uh, we have souls. Unless you're a um, physicalist a Christian, you believe that we have a soul. Um, and so we, in that way, we, um, you know, spirit, we could say God is a spirit. Um, we have, uh, free will. Uh, the animals don't seem to have free will, at least not to the degree that we have. Um, and so that's an important piece of that. I feel like I'm leaving. Oh, morals. We have the ability to reason morally. You know, the famous thing that William Lane Craig has said for years that, um, when a lion chases down a gazelle and rips it apart, we say it killed the gazelle. We don't say it murdered the gazelle unless we're trying to be funny. And why is that? Well, it's because we understand that murder is a moral term that is relative to humans and, and, and God as well. God uh, is moral. 
And so these are things that make us, the ways that we're like God, things we share in common with God and not with the animals. And I think that's a good way to get started on understanding the image of God. Yeah, I think all of those things are entailed by the image of God because what the image of God, in my view, primarily entails is a terms of function. So um, if you think about icon or image, what is the function of that? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, when they wanted to construct a temple or whatever, they put a little icon of the God in there, right? Mm-hmm. And it would be something that was manufactured by persons, right? Mm-hmm. Well, God decided to put two people in his, right? And they were given duties to function the service sovereigns and subduers in the same way that God himself had subdued the chaos and all of that kind of stuff. And he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And so in terms of function and subordinated sovereignty, I think that that's primarily, and so all the qualities and characteristics and attributes you just listed are entailed in what's necessary for you to be able to fulfill that function as an image bearer doing that function in uh, God's creation. So that all makes sense um, when you think about in terms of what our vocation or our function is as image bearers when you're rightly doing your priestly service, which giving those characteristics helps in, in what way we like God demonstrates just why, uh, whether you're talking about Isaiah or you're talking about Paul in, uh, you know, in the New Testament, you know, or the, the minor prophets where they're making fun of, you know, what, with half a piece of wood, you, you, you're going to make an idol and the, uh, you're going to hope to God, you know, hope to whatever it is you just made that it doesn't just tump over. And then you're cooking dinner with the other half of your God, you know, the same wood. Well, this is so stupid, right? And, and, and that's why all that polemic. Why think that gods are anything like these created things? Uh, because of that function of the image bearer in the Judeo-Christian thought. So, yeah. Okay. Um, why? Let's see. Here we go. Uh, Scott Heath says, why all the warnings in the New Testament to the church and believers of false teachers and being led astray? If the worst thing that happens is your preserver. Because you're preserved, because you're preserved, and go to heaven. Yeah, because that's not the worst thing that happens. So yeah. that's my view. But people, but you have a, people can die and go to hell. Yeah, um, and be out of the kingdom. Yeah, I, I, no, there's no. Um, while the warnings to the church and to believers of false teachers being led astray, uh, it's because the Southern Baptist uh, typical evangelical doctrine of once saved, always saved is not biblical. That's why. <laughs> And Perseverance of the Saints from Calvinism. We have a whole episode of that on Trinity Radio Extra. Go check out Trinity Radio Extra. Um, It's linked in the description even now, and you can go subscribe in another window, and I know that we'd really appreciate that. Um, Let's see. There was one I definitely know. Well, you have a different answer to that question, though. What? No, I don't. Oh. Well, I mean, I don't don't throw out eternal security that easily, but I'm just saying... uh, the, the, the reason that false teaching is important is because you can go to hell and other people can go to hell, even if you don't think you're going to yeah. go to hell. Um, but I think that the, be- the believers in the church who evangelicals say the truly born again, really, 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 and they can go on with the reallys at infinitum, uh, saved. Locks, yeah, I don't believe that you're one saved always. Locks Logos and says, adding reallys and trulys. Would you extreme? Would you anything. would you say extreme fundamentalism is the root cause of atheism? I think it is. I've heard fundamentalism is the perfect breeding ground for atheism. No. Well, first of all, fundamentalism is a demonized term. When what we really mean simply by fundamentalism, um, 
or you know is just that there are certain fundamentals that we you believe you have to be a, believe to be a Christian. Um, that is not what it has come to mean. And so understanding what it has come to mean, um, I think uh, it's it's a big cause of atheism. Um, it's interesting to note that that most of your atheist channels on YouTube, that's what they're responding to is fundamentalism. They're not they're not there are some that are responding to um, more defensible, uh, you know, genre um, conscious understandings of Christianity. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, 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 I think it's not a big breeding ground for atheists. I think there's more children of Southern Baptist pastors going into rebellion and starting the local chapter of the atheists are us club. than there are like the diehard fundamentalist, independent fundamentalist Baptist pastors, kids running around apostatizing and starting atheist club. I think, I think typical evangelical churches create uh, more atheists than fundamentalists. So there's just more of them. So I, I, I'm not sold that fundamentalism is fundamentalism is a breeding, breeding ground for more fundamentalists. So I know this anyway. might be a tired question, but what is your take on Genesis chapter six? Who are the Nephilim and the sons of God? I know in Job, it speaks of the sons of God coming before God. Thank you, Manny. Um, my, so I have a, um, I actually have a uh, series through the book of Genesis that you can see right there. And you can get there by going to that playlist. Whoops, there's Derek again. Um, you can get there by going to our, nice. to that playlist on uh, at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. Or if you just want it in audio form, you can go to trinityradio.org and click on the verse by verse tab. Um, and I talk about it there in, in great detail and cross-reference it with everywhere. Um, that might be relevant to help figure it out. But the simple answer is I'm agnostic about the nature of the Nephilim. Me too. Um, I don't really know. Um, and, and I go through all the reasons why I don't know in that, in that passage. But it's not, it's not that I don't know that I, like I haven't studied it. Yeah. It's like, and if I would just study more, maybe then I would know. Yeah. Um, it's and that I've studied have, it and I still don't know. <laughs> right. And I want to have Matt Chisholm come on uh, Trinity Radio Extra and talk about this stuff because he loves that stuff. So I'm going to have him come on and talk about it. Uh, And so look for an episode with Matt Chisholm for the Bible Brodown in a future Trinity Radio Extra world. I'm just going to let him explain, and Braxton, you you can sit in if you'd like, explain to us all there is to know about the Nephilim that you get from weird internet websites. Jerry Craig, do you think God has reasons for selecting one feasible world over another? Yes. If so, what determines those reasons as opposed to reasons that would motivate selecting a different feasible world? Um, I think, I don't don't know why God... Determines. I don't know why God chooses one world over another. Yeah. Um, Most of your Molinists will say he chooses the world where the most people freely accept Christ and come into the kingdom. Um, some, I actually some, agree with that answer since he's too. not willing that any should perish. Some, some might say that he, he selects the world yeah. where he gets the most glory to go back to a previous question. So yeah. I don't really know. But I don't I, think that those two answers are... I don't think they're mutually exclusive either. Right. So uh, I think that's the same answer. I, 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 but I, I'll throw my hat into the ring and say I agree too that it's probably the one where the most people freely come to faith. Right. And that's the one that brings God the most glory. Um, uh, I, let's see, let's see, man, we're so behind. I'm trying to catch up folks. I'm so sorry. Um, 
and remember, you you need to put a put question. So um, your the current video game that you're playing is your current favorite video game. Currently, you've never liked a video game more than that ever in the history of. Video oh, it's games. close. It's close. Really? It's pretty close. Even see, the, I looked at y'all playing it for like two minutes. And I thought, yeah, that's not Super I, Mario. Bros. And me and Andy have said repeatedly that if you would join us, no, you would understand. I'm not doing that. Um, okay. Here. I have my NES classic that thing that they put out that's like this big. Finding, and yeah. It's got more games than I could ever play in my life. Finding Truth uh, says, A YouTuber said that God being uncaused is special pleading. We know this is not true, but can you address why it is not um, in, in your special pleading and your thought and your thoughts about it? God being uncaused is special pleading. This, this goes back kind of to the... Um, well, who made God sort of thing, which yeah. is even joked about by atheists now as being like a terrible thing to say. Yeah. Um, but, but the reason that it's not a problem for God to be uncaused is, first of all, you can't have this infinite regression. There has to be um, something that is uncaused that causes everything else. That's just the way it has to be, unless you want to defend a past infinite series, causal series, and good luck with that. So... Um, the reason it's not a problem for God is because of the very fact that God is sands the physical universe. You have a spaceless, timeless state of nothingness, except for God. And, and um, the only things that need beginnings and endings are things in time. That's temporal language. It doesn't even make any sense to say beginning or ending in a timeless state. So it is just simply categorically wrong to say that God would have to have a beginning. He's also metaphysically necessary, and you have to have at the bottom something that's metaphysically necessary. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, so that's, that's what we're talking about. It's not special pleading. If you if you mean something else by God, then that's not what we're talking about anyway. So when we mean God, we talk about the timeless, spaceless, incredibly powerful, you know, disembodied mind, you know, all that stuff. Why if you, if you mean it, something else, then we're not. I'm not. Then we're not having the same conversation. Why does it seem that all non-Christian cults attack and distort the Trinity doctrine? And why do you think most churches don't teach on this anymore? Uh, they all attack it because they think that arguments like the word Trinity is not in the Bible is actually a good one instead of a flippantly dismissible and silly one. And they have misunderstandings of the Trinity that make it contradictory. Right. And it's not contradictory. And then why do most church, churches teach on it more? Well, because it's hard to teach, and so I think that. Lazy pastors just don't want to teach. But they should teach on the Trinity. Doctrine. And you're absolutely right, because mm-hmm. almost every cult that's out there does something to mess up the Trinity, including Islam. I mean, th- this this is this happens with the New Age. This happens with Christian science. This happens with Mormonism. This this happens, uh, you know, across the board, it seems like with with cults. Um, and so uh, it distorts the Godhead. It distorts God's nature in a way that seems understandable to listeners. I mean, you can if you have someone who's not theologically minded or has thought deeply about these things or been taught on these things, and and you're and you're wanting to be a cult leader, one of the easiest ways to try and shoot down Christianity is to say, you've always known in deep down, right, that that doesn't make sense. One God and three gods. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a contradiction. You know, it's easy to distort. And then from there, you have to go through the Bible and figure out how you're going to fill out your cult details with that in mind. Um, but, of course, the Trinity is not one God and three gods. It's one God, uh, uh, one God, three persons. That's not contradictory. It's like a triangle is one triangle, 
three distinct points. I can't see the comments in right? here again. Well, I'm working with limited screens here, Pritchett. You don't need this stuff. Get back to the live, our live stream. Oh, well, but there's, uh, well, there's one that I'm trying to get to. Um, there's one, uh, where, where's the person that asked me? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I've lost one that I really wanted to answer about physicalism. I'll just tell you, someone asked me, I think it was the programmer, why do I reject Christian physicalism, the idea that we don't have souls? And there are uh, both biblical and philosophical reasons for this. Um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, Do not fear those that kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, that, you know, that, that seems to say, okay, you got two things going on, your body and your soul. And uh, one can die here on earth. Uh, the par parallel to this passage is in Luke 12, verse 4 and following. Um, and you can kill your body. We know what that's like. But don't worry about someone that can just kill your body. You need to worry about the one who can deny you access into the kingdom. And by virtue of that, your soul and your body, your body and your soul are going to be killed. So it seems to be a distinction there. Also, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I think in, the, in Philippians as well, um, is, is, describes us um, leaving here and going somewhere else. In 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so it seems like there's biblical support for this idea of a soul. But then in addition to that, there are philosophical problems for Christians who don't believe in a soul. And I've never heard, and I have, I have thoroughly read journal articles and books on this that I have asked physicalists to recommend to me. And, um, and, and, I, and I don't have an answer to this question. The problem of the continuity of identity. Yep. How is it that if I don't have a soul, if I'm just my physical body, and my body dies and decays, and then God later at the resurrection creates for me a new body, and that body is then me, that's a copy of me. That's not me. In fact, for that matter, he could do it right now, right next to me. He'd create another one of me, but I'm still sitting over here thinking, who's this guy? He's gorgeous, but who is he? You know, so the, the bottom line is, I think there are philosophical reasons and biblical reasons to reject physicalism. All right. Um, yes. There you go again, Pritchett. Uh, let's see what else do we need. Um, Pritchett, this one's for you because you did your dissertation kind of on this. Um, how do you interpret Romans nine nineteen? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Um, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Um, that is a Jewish interlocutor objecting to what Paul had just said. And then the very next verse is, uh, who are you, O man? to answer back to God, and then he goes into the potter and the clay. What's interesting about this is it's not until you get to Romans 11 that anywhere in the diatribe in the book of Romans does Paul accept the premise of the interlocutor's statement or question or, or you know, whatever. And so I think here the potter and the clay analogy that Paul goes into after this if you pick up the echoes of it of Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, there's three places in Isaiah and then Jeremiah that Paul totally rejects the entire premise yet again here. And 
the reason why he finds fault is because of the Jewish interlocutor's misunderstanding of the objector. Um, the answer is not, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God because uh, no one can resist God's will and you have to suck it up because God, whatever. That's, that's not, the, the potter and clay demonstrates that people resist God's will all the time because, you know, if you, if you read Jeremiah 18, if you read Isaiah 29, disobedient Israel uh, is constantly going against what God has said. And so Paul doesn't accept the premise, and he actually uses the potter and clay not as our friends think uh, on the Calvinist side that, that, um, uh, that, uh, that uh, it's all just determined or whatever. It's actually the exact opposite. It's because people are disobedient and rebellious that God has a right to find fault with those who are under judgment because of their sinful actions. And so that's exactly what God does um, all throughout the prophets. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that the determinist reading of that is valid at all. And in fact, there's no reason in anywhere in Romans to think that Paul even remotely accepts the premise of the question because he never has anywhere prior to that in Romans, and he doesn't anywhere with the Jewish objector, and it is not until chapter 11 where the Gentile, and the interlocutor changes and becomes a Gentile, that Paul even sort of accepts the premise of his interlocutor, and he said, you know, where they say branches were broken off so that we grafted in, he accepts that, but then he still conditions that with a warning to the Gentiles, right? True enough, but don't you know, get arrogant about it because he can cut you back off too. So, and that's the only place anywhere in Romans that Paul accepts even the underlying premise of the interlocutor's suggestions and and, and, and rhetorical questions. So, and even there he qualifies it, but it's with a Gentile interlocutor. But every, inter, the, until the interlocutor change, is always the Jewish interlocutor prior to that, and Paul never once accepts the premise. So I have a hard time thinking that Paul is accepting the premise in verse 20 in his response to who are you, O man, to answer back to God. In fact, I take that as another way of demonstrating that he's not accepting the premise again, because the the premise seems to be that that God can't find fault because we had no other capacity but to be this, and Paul's like, nope. How does one answer the objection that the Bible is just a story or maybe an exaggeration of the details of the real story, i.e. the Gospels and the things like the resurrection. Well, with the resurrection specifically, um, we we make a robust case for that. A that, historical yeah. case. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind. But then um, with other things, uh, the person would have to give me a specific story. So we know that, for example, uh, the Bible mentions real places, real people, uh, real events. Um, and Luke is, is uh, one that Luke and Acts are very specific in those kinds of details. Now, the typical answer to that that you hear from people like Matt Dillahunty is, okay, well, that's like someone 2,000 years from now showing that New York City really exists uh, and then claiming that Spider-Man was real. Um, okay, fair enough. But my point is the setting is one that people that, that is clearly based. It's meant to look like a historical account. Okay, the author wants you to understand it as a historical account and includes historical events that we can verify in in the story. Well, depending on genre, we're talking about the Gospels right now. So then with supernatural events like the resurrection, in the case of the resurrection, we actually can uh, show good reason to believe that actually happened as a historical event. With other things, what I tend to find is someone who says that um, 
that kind of a person usually has some um, presupposed baggage uh, that causes them to say that, like they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe that miracles can happen. So that would actually be the better place to go with them. Well, why do you, so you don't believe that, um, you know, that the Red Sea was parted or whatever, because you don't think seas can part because you don't think there's a God and you don't think supernatural stuff happens. Okay, so let's talk about why you think that before we talk about the Bible more. So that that's kind of how I would answer that. What do you think, Pritchett? Uh, I think that that's fine. Uh, I also want to <laughs> come back to the Romans 9 thing because it's a reminder that we, we still have a book that eventually come out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I, We've all written on Romans in that book, and I wrote a chapter on Romans 9 uh, stemming from my uh, doctoral work. And what you'll find there um, is interesting because if you go back to Romans 3, 5 through 9, you find that Paul says something, and why not just say, as they some slanderously say about us, let us do evil so that good, you know. And so if you take the idea that Paul's interlocutors are trying to slander Paul, what's funny about that is when you get to Romans 9, which picks up from Romans 3, by the way, you know, I mean, it's like Paul says, first, they were very, they were entrusted with the very words of God. And then you don't get to the rest of his list until Romans 9, 4, and 5. So you have this big, huge section there where, you know, it says, first, they were entrusted with the words of God. Then you don't get, and they had the, you know, the, the temple worship and Jesus and all that uh, in Romans 9, 4, and 5. Uh, to them belong the prophets and the covenants and everything else and the worship and all that. So, if you, if you keep it connected in your mind, then you follow Paul's argument. What's interesting is I don't believe, and I make this case in, our, in, a, in that article or in my, my essay that's coming out in the book. Uh, I make the case that not only is the interlocutor saying, uh, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I think that's the, inter- the interlocutor. Are we ne- back on that again? Yeah. Neither the interlocutor nor Paul. Well, I wanted to advertise a book that will eventually come out. Maybe you'll get in a hurry to finish it. Um, I wanted so, but I also wanted to put this out there that I get the impression that the interlocutor doesn't believe what he's saying. He's just saying things. He's just tossing out objections. Uh, and I think Douglas Campbell's right that Paul probably heard these kinds of things in the synagogues while he was first to the Jew running in the synagogues trying to dialogue with him about Christ. Is it these slanderous things? Uh, what's one way that you could make Paul look bad? Well, uh, some of the Jewish leaders, we. You, you would say that uh, they weren't like the Essenes who were Here's fatalists. Here's Evansville folks. But the Pharisees, were, you know, unlike them, they would they would probably throw up some ideas that Paul would reject um, and, and try to make Paul look bad. So I think that the why does he still find fault who can resist his will is not something that the interlocutor, the stand-in for the typical objector, actually believes because that's something that they're trying to say to a slander Paul's gospel and say, well, they just couldn't help it. And so what I find interesting in like the justification of God by John Piper, uh, the dumbest arguments are ever, and Jonathan Clowens just totally destroys this, but the dumbest arguments are made that, oh no, Paul actually agrees with the Essenes, you know, as if, you know, fatalism and all that kind of stuff. And it's just the dumbest thing ever. But anyway, I wanted to, so I go all into all of that and, and, and rip that to shreds. Also uh, in this and, video, you went into all of that. Yeah. But, right, so but I, John, I make the case and the, the, got the sources and all that. How do you justify that it's okay for God to kill babies, but when man kills babies, it's evil. Okay. Without getting into all the possibilities like ancient Near Eastern war rhetoric and all that. And we talk about something like David's kid, um, 
being killed. Here, here's the thing that I, that I think you need to understand. The, the, the statement seems to imply a belief that everyone has the same exact rights. Um, what if I ask this question? Um, how do you justify that it's okay for the state to put people in prison, but it's wrong for average citizens to put people to imprison people in their basement? Well, obviously, because the state has the ability, we want them to have the ability to do that um, in general, right? Because, and, and so they don't have the same rights as, a, they have different rights than an individual person does. Um, wh why is it okay for me to take my own kid home to my house, but it's wrong for someone else to take my kid home to their house? People have different rights depending on the circumstances. God has the right, if he wants to, to take his kids home. He can do that. He can take people home. Um, you can't guarantee, you, you, first of all, that other person, you're not their maker. You're not their creator. Um, and so God has freedoms there to do with people what he wants to do. Now, if it sounds so horrible to you, the idea that God might kill a child, God can ensure the afterlife of that child. Now, if you roll your eyes at that and just say, well, yeah, I don't believe in the afterlife and stuff. Well, then what are we talking about here? Because we're talking about what, God, what a God who exists could do and why he can do it. Well, he can bring that kid home if he wants to, and he can guarantee that child's future in heaven if he wants to. So yeah, I don't see the yeah, problem. Now, if the idea is, let's go back to something that came up in the last stream last week. Yeah. If, the, if the idea is, oh yeah, but like in the flood or in this case or something, there's, there's all this suffering involved. Well, maybe, and as Pritchett said, um, everybody's life includes suffering. And in that respect, uh, there's tragedy in everyone's life. Uh, but it's a blink in, in light of eternity. Now, yeah. if that sounds horrible to you in light of a particular case of a child that you knew who really suffered, that's horrible. And, and I don't want to take away from that. I would not want my kids to suffer. But you also have to prove that in every particular case, God didn't remove their suffering because you don't know what God did. You don't have any idea. And there, like I say, there's 20 guys in Evansville who are anesthesiologists who can remove your suffering. You don't think the God of the universe could do that if you wanted to? So all it comes down to, again, is thinking that God is like us in a way that God, he's not like us, especially when it comes to his um, dispensing justice and, and doing what he pleases with his creation. Yeah. Pritchett? Yeah. Um, there's no law to which God himself has to uh, follow. Did you? I don't have to justify what God does. God's God. And so I I don't have to justify, you know, okay, so, well, I would never do this. Let's, let's take a farmer, someone else with chickens, okay? I can't, I can't bring myself to do this, but I, I'm not going to sit in judgment over um, uh, a farmer who wants to uh, strangle and, and, and chop the head off of his chicken and then bull its feathers off and then gut it and then eat his own chicken. I can't eat any of my own chickens, but just because, but I can eat his chicken. My chickens have names, which is why I can't do it, but I can eat his chicken and I have freezers filled with chicken meat. Right. But so I can't tell him he shouldn't kill his chickens. They're his chickens. Right. I don't have to, I don't have to justify, he doesn't have to justify to me the fact that he's going to kill his chickens. Well, the difference between God and us is exponentially more than the difference between me and my neighbor and our chickens. So 
the the idea to me, I, I understand the question, how do you justify, and then you put in the lowercase, you don't believe that God exists or killed any babies anyway, so uh, I don't have to, but I don't have to justify it either because God doesn't answer to me and he doesn't answer to the questioner. So that's where a little bit of that presuppositionalism uh, that I like that Braxton doesn't care for actually helps. I care for, I believe, I agree with the presuppositionalists. I just don't think it's the best apologetic methodology in general. Yeah. Does God have unfulfilled desires? Would the existence of an unfulfilled desire preclude perfection and require the ability to change from unfulfilled to fulfilled? Yes, I believe there are things God wants to happen that haven't happened and won't happen. But this business about perfections, the way you mean it, is one of the problems with taking classical theism and running amok with it. Um, God can have things that, that are unfulfilled, and then they can be fulfilled. And in that sense, there's a change that takes place. I don't know that. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that there needs to be, like, sometimes we define things in such a way for theological clarity but then what happens is it's just it just ends up causing more confusion than it solves. I think, Pritchett, do you have do you agree? Well, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to Platonism, and still I don't think that that's a meaningful thing. I'm with you. It's it's just I don't I don't run amok with classical theism to the point to where I have to answer weird questions like that. Cordy uh, says God's a person more than a it. Yeah. So. A church, Cordy says Papias mentions St. Mark was his secretary, but that's the only real way we know it's St. Peter's testimony. So actually there's internal and external evidence for the author uh, that Mark is giving us the testimony of Peter. And a slight majority of scholars believe that the author of Mark is giving us the testimony of Peter as best he remembered it. And um, some, of the, some of the testimony has to do with the way um, certain stories are framed in Mark versus other Things. Another thing would be if you go with Richard Bauckham's understand, understanding of um, the, a device that he calls the inclusio, where it looks like sometimes a source is given, like a, an author is giving you a source by bookending a pericope, a particular story, with the name of a particular person or the entire book itself. In the case of the Gospel of Mark, Peter shows up very early on. I can't remember exactly. It might be verse chapter 1, verse 14. I'm not sure. And then he's mentioned uh, right there toward the end. And this is bookending it, to, if he's correct, to say, and we know that some people in the ancient world did use this thing, inclusio, um, in the genre that uh, of Greco-Roman biography. So, um, so that's one thing. The, the way the stories appear, if you read them, that um, Peter's not looking as bad as maybe he does elsewhere. And then also you do have uh, external evidence like that. So you didn't even ask that as a question. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, uh, and let's, the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? Well, the church fathers said it, so obviously modern scholarship knows way better than those church fathers who were closer to the time of the actual that Don't fall for that. Unless um, you have good reason for rejecting the testimony of, an, uh, of a church father, and those good reasons are based on that church father's reliability, not modern scholarship's opinions, then be sympathetic when you read the church father. Great logo, precious meddler. And you ask, the, the synoptics place Jesus' rejections at Nazareth at different times. When do you think the rejection occurred? Now, this, um, first of all, I don't know. But see, part of it is, you. Um, if you haven't read, and I know there are people here that uh, are in the chat and who are, sympathetic to our ministry who um who who do not like this particular 
source, but um, in Mike Lycona's uh, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, he lists out all of the different literary tools and, de and devices that um, uh, people writing Greco-Roman biography used. One of those is called displacement, um, and one of those is called compression. And what this has to do with is um, arranging the story. It's not that these events didn't happen, but it's arranging the details in a way to tell, uh, to tell it in a way that is going to make some point the way you want to make it or, um, or something like that. Now, then on the other hand, you have people like Lydia McGrew who write in response to that and say, no, 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 no that's, that's not how it goes. And that actually does damage to, to scripture. Um, but I, uh, but I'm currently in, look, what they all, what they both agree on is that there are literary devices, um, and that there are cases where you would harmonize. So I think that this is the result of a literary device, um, either that displacement or compression, but I, I can't know for sure. I can't be dogmatic about that. So, um, there's my answer to that as honestly as I can. Speaking of the very thing I was talking about, not being able to. You know, about my chickens, I just got a text saying that we, we gave away one of the chickens, and we, we found out recently, it was just this week that we found out that, that, that uh, no one in our house has, has the ability to kill our own chicken. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. All right, And so Derek. I just got a text that, that one of our roosters was uh, sold. We, we listed it for someone to buy, probably for what four or five dollars. But mm -hmm. so that we, and if they kill it, fine. It, it, you know what his name is? No. The rooster, Kylo Hen. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, Derek, thank you for that super chat, man. Do you think there should be a bigger emphasis on apologetics against New Age and Eastern mysticism? Yes. Wouldn't you say the church is losing more people to that than atheism? Yeah, it's been saying it for years yeah. on Trinity Radio. You Absolutely. I, part of me wants. Part of me thinks maybe he knows that, and he was just teeing you up. I don't yeah. know. But why? Why? Why is why? Because he's that? right. We're, the church people aren't flocking to atheism in droves. They are flocking to various forms of paganism and mysticism and New Agey nonsense, though. You know, we just covered a guy who did the same thing last week. You know, yeah. that's a bigger thing, in my opinion, than this atheism. No, most people are too smart to be atheists. Did I just say that? I did say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so there you go. He thinks so. And, and I think there should be an emphasis. I, kid, I just don't know why they have are to be smart, too. I just don't know why they have to be mutually exclusive. I don't know why you can't. They're not mutually exclusive. It's just overwhelming. Ministries. The overwhelming attention from apologists is given to the tiniest percentage of people. Uh, atheism. You just, you just, Nobody. you just have to. Um, yeah, and atheists are barely. Uh, so, servant of Christ. The problem with um, Fortnite for me is the maps are too small. There's no vehicles except for those little shopping carts. I hate the building aspect, like building things aspect of it. I just never got into it, man. I'm sorry. I, I get it. I get it. I understand the appeal. Um, I'm trying to catch up here. So if I miss some of your questions, please forgive me for that. But, man, you guys have just been, been, going been a very aggressive. You want us to quit? Oh, Zom gave a better, more specific. Um, oh, 411, Apostle is just being sent one. So yeah, I don't have to say in that Ephesians that, four eleven. Yes, the and I don't. I don't think that's the office of the apostle. I'm with Craig Keener on. But it's this there with apostle, heard. teacher, pastor, evangelist. Right, sent one. I think that's a lowercase case. I agree with Craig Keener on that. So yeah, so I don't have to accept the premise from cessationism. The office, you know, 
of apostle ceased, and that means that gift ceased because he uses the word gift. Now, don't have to accept Tom that, Jump, so. for example, believes in objective morality without God. Why is God necessary for objective morality? What you'll hear, I don't know how Tom Jump does this, but I'll tell you how most of these atheists that claim objective morality do this. They subjectively choose a goal, subjectively choose a goal they like, like human well-being, okay? And then there are objectively better or worse ways to get to that goal, and that's true. So just like with a chess game, someone subjectively designed the game of chess. They just made up this game. They liked it. They wanted it. They made the rules what they wanted the rules to be. And then within that game, now that it's made, there are objectively better or worse ways to win that game. That much is true. Oh, so, so the rules to chess are objective or the strategies are objective. Well, yes, but the game itself, the goal of the game itself is, was subjectively decided upon. That's not objective morality. That's subjective morality. Any other attempt for um, uh, like a um, non-natural moral realism, like that there is an objective foundation, but it's not God's nature. It's just like mathematics or like, um, uh, you know, the laws of logic. It's just a part of the universe. Um, the problem with that is, number one, I see that as pinhole thinking. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say pinhole thinking, um, go back and watch the response video I made to Tom Jump, and you'll see what I mean by that. Um, and then secondly, it doesn't really answer the question, which you don't have to. You can say, I don't know. Well, that's fine. But it looks like at a point like that where it's like, no, 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 you don't have a foundation for objective morality. Yeah, but I believe in it. Okay, well, how is it? What What's the foundation? I don't know. seems like that person is just dodging the natural right. and answer, with, which is that it's God. Right. And then last thing before Same you go, Same with Pritchett. mathematics and, and reason and logic, by the way. All yeah. that's grounded in the internal, the eternal active intelligence of God's mind. It's always been known. That's why it works here. Same, same with morality. So I don't... I, I, I think objective morality is the same, has the same grounding as mathematics and logic and all yeah, of that. It's God's so, nature. Right. But here's the thing. Even God's if you found something else that was not personal Nature's that you wanted to ground it in, yeah. the problem there is it wouldn't explain the teleology of morals. Yeah. The morals seem very designed. The, the morals seem designed uh, to fit human interactions and human, uh, you know, human for the most part, flourishing and things like that. So it seems like it needs to be a personal agent and there's just not another foundation for it. Oh, it needs to be a personal agent who designed the agents, uh, the, the subsequent agents, yeah. us. That's why this goes back to what I said last week. The reason why I try to encourage Christians to be obedient to God's commandments is because it's the best way to be uh, flourishing as a human because God, as your creator, knows what's best for you. They're not a... Yep. The commandments are not a burden, uh, according to... Jose Martinez says, Some skeptics argue that NDE reports are unreliable because they report contradictory things about the afterlife. What are your thoughts? First of all, the thing that I'm most interested in about near-death experiences, and I have in the book, Death is a Doorway, um, a list of things that I, that where I call away near-death reports as not evidential. But to make them evidential, it needs to be written up by a medical professional needs to be soon after the person was resuscitated, not a month later when they've had time to work out this amazing Narnia story. Um, it needs to, it, it's best if it's an unbelieving medical professional for obvious reasons. And uh, the best ones have verifiable facts, like someone saw something a block away from the hospital. 
So that the, and the and the re, and the interest I have in those is to show that naturalism is false, yeah. and to show that we somehow survive physical death or can exist aside from our body. Um, and quite frankly, those are more interesting than like tourism stuff. Yeah, the thing about the going to heaven and that sort of thing, I I don't have as much interest in that. Yeah. Now the con now if I did want to go into that, um, most of what they call contradictions have to do with a Hindu seeing a Hindu God and a Christian seeing a Christian God and a Muslim seeing something related to Islam. The problem there is, and, and you can look at this, the work's been done on this. It seems like what they saw was, what they experienced was more or less ambiguous, and that was an interpretation that they put on yeah. the experience from their background. But those so, are still not very interesting. But, but, I, but let's also add the fact that near deaths are not reliable because they are contradictory. Well, some may be reliable on, and some that, I don't know, it's just weird. Just to say, Because something is contradictory doesn't mean that they're all, therefore they're all unreliable. So you can't say that because some of them might be reliable. And just because others contradict it, well, which ones were the ones that were reliable or not? You can't say none of them are reliable That's because right. all of them contradict. That just doesn't follow. So it's not even a meaningful thing anyway. <clears throat> I've asked my dad, he also says, about the meaning of life. Where do we come from? Objective morality. He responds by saying they're not important questions. What are your thoughts? They're important questions. And I think he would have to, I think he would have to, if pressed, admit that he thinks they're important by the actions he takes in his life yeah. that demonstrate their importance. Yeah. Um, all right. So there's that. Let's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get. Does he live consistently with the thing that that's true? Probably not. Why would God choose to reveal the truth? Why would God choose to reveal the truth to only a few and not to everyone at the same time? This is a question I got asked by an agnostic friend the other day. Um, well, God works in a realistic way. And, well, it, what, it depends on what you mean. Do you mean like in some supernatural um, realization? Yeah. Why like, did God speak to Isaiah but never spoke to Braxton in the same way that he spoke to well, God, Isaiah? God's goals... Um, are and this is also would push you back to like ephesians um the whole book god wants people to function as the body of christ to uh do to to basically do the work in the world as the church so god so we are in christ we are the body of christ and that's just the way god wants it god wants us to realistically function in life to spread the gospel and it's amazing when you look at the population of the history of the world that um, uh, that that when I'm going to probably mess this up, but I think it's the case that most of the people that lived came after, um, uh, it, you know, as as far as recorded human history. And the thing about it is. Jesus came at exactly the right time when there was a road system and there was um, communication and you could write things down and much of Christianity spread because Roman soldiers would hear the message and become Christians when they were um, stationed somewhere and then they would go back to their own homes in other remote places. We think that's how it first got to maybe like um, uh, Great Britain and places like that. And so, and so this came at exactly the right time and God chooses to use the spread of human beings to spread the gospel because God wants relationship and he wants people to show love to each other. And that's the way he does it. Now there are cases where Jesus, um, where God has directly shown up as, as you mentioned, uh, obviously in biblical history, but also, um, uh, Muslims, um, have, have had appearances of Christ yeah. personally. And we have that, we have a whole video on that. Well, this is, 
yeah, I actually reject the premise of the question, um, so to speak. I don't, I, I don't think that the truth has not been revealed by God to everyone, uh, you know, whether through nature or divine or general revelation. Um, going back to the language that the people like Nick Quint would use, you know, God has in an in a, in a apocalyptically unveiled this to, to the world. Now, has all the divine information reached every single human being? Well, not every single human being gets the information at the same time, uh, but God has set up a system to where we are the the, the bringers of the uh, of the message. You know, we're part, we're the ambassadors of the, of Christ's kingdom to go share this message, and and so the Spirit can reveal it and uh, truth to everyone, and it can be rejected by people. So, okay, I don't know if I. This is why I have a hard time accepting even the premise of the unevangelized as if, you know, I want to go further than most typical evangelicals can go at the effectiveness of general revelation. And I also want to go further than even our Calvinist friends will at the corruption of sin in response to that. So I'm not saying that it's going to be that general revelation can be successful, but I, I do... I do, with our presuppositionalist and Reformed friends, think that people have suppressed the truth, but they have it. They know God. Okay, um, here's a good question. Um, I just got here. What did I miss with the $20 no. Super Chat? We're going to get to the Super Chats, don't okay. worry. Does Not sin much. disqualify me from pursuing ministry? I want to study theology, but I still struggle with sins in my life. I repent continually, but I always return to sin. You know what? Um, the fact is that you're going to do that for the rest of your life, more or less, with something. Um, there are groups. If that it's the same sin, you don't repent continually at all, because repentance you turn away from that sin. If it's the same sin that you generally, if you did repent, then you've turned away from it, and you don't just go back to it over and over and over. That's what should happen. Right. But we do mess up, and yeah. But I'm saying, if you if you're repenting continually, is it like? Every day I say, I'm sorry, I'm repenting. I ask, well, forgiveness and repentance are the same thing, but I'm turning from this. And then you do that same thing every single day. That's a, I wouldn't pursue ministry if your sin, if your sin is, so let's say that your sin is porn, right? And you struggle with, we've got enough people in ministry struggling with porn. I would say if you are, repenting and then the very next day or three hours later you're going back to porn no i don't think that you need to get into ministry if that's you until you've defeated that okay um because it doesn't seem like that repentance is actual repentance you may be sorry you may feel guilty i don't think god actually cares how sorry you are about your your sin or how guilty you feel about it, mm -hmm. you know, that's meaningless. That, guilt's to help you feel better that, that I must be a good person because I feel bad because I did a bad thing. That, mm -hmm. That's for you. It's not for God. Y'all didn't care that you feel guilty. Ancient people who aren't introspective don't have guilt over their bad thing. They have shame over it. And that, so it's, your guilty feelings don't mean anything. So if, if you're committing the same sin that you're having to repent over, on a daily or even weekly basis, wait until you've conquered that before you uh, do that. Now, if it's like, but I believe in greater and lesser sins. If you're, you know, if the sin is not something that serious, then that's what you would mean that like, like I'm going to probably commit a sin today, right? Um, but if it's like a big, serious problem in your life that has a stranglehold in your life, you know, it's not just, oh, I didn't love my neighbor 
it wasn't like a sin of omission or, or whatever, then yeah, you can go into ministry. But if you're dealing with a specific sin that you're that you're constantly committing, I think that you need to get those out of your life before you get into ministry. Does it disqualify you from pursuing ministry, though? No, it does not disqualify you from pursuing ministry, but you need in your pursuit to defeat those before you enter ministry. Um, Do you want to add to that? Yeah. I, I, I What I was going to say initially is watch the video that I'm going to release either later today or tomorrow in our Genesis series, which says something like um, giving up or the value of giving up or something like that, because what we're looking at is the story of Jacob wrestling with God, Jacob wrestling with the angel. And Jacob had a whole life of wrestling with God in, in a metaphorical sense, not in a metaphorical sense, but not in a physical sense. And, um, and he, and, and, and then literally at 97 years old, he wrestled with God all night long. And um, ultimately he gave up and he hadn't even made God his God. He had always referred to God as the God of my fathers, the God of my, the fear of Isaac. You know, he never said my God, but ultimately he does build an altar to God and he makes God his God. And I think all that is very important because I think every Christian knows the experience of wrestling with God in a different way with sins in our lives. What I, I agree with everything Pritchett said, and I think it's a good warning, but what I would say is, let's say it is something like pornography. Um, he's right. It shouldn't be a daily addiction and something that you just keep going back to and thinking that, well, as long as I repent and say I'm sorry, it's okay. But I don't think your heart is that. I think you genuinely mean to repent, but you do end up going back to it. And that still is something you need to work out maybe before you go further. It doesn't mean you can't go ahead and start studying for ministry. And um, that shouldn't go on, go on too very long. Now, a year from now, two years from now, you might relapse. And that's a real thing. And that doesn't mean you're disqualified and it doesn't right. mean you need to stop. But you're wrestling with God. In one sense, our whole life is a wrestling with God. Um, one of my favorite pastors who died just a few years ago at 88 years old and was my pastor at one time, he said the Christian life is like um, it, it's like you're, you're becoming more like Jesus throughout the process of sanctification. And it's often like three steps forward, two steps back. But it should generally be a trend of becoming more like Jesus. But you're going to mess up. And there may be periods of time where you really dip. But here's the thing. If God's called you to ministry and to the gospel ministry, it may be that in surrendering to that is when you'll you'll put away old things because it may be that you're wrestling with God even about that issue of going into ministry and the accuser is having victory in your life by saying, look at you, you don't deserve this. You can't, you can't do this. Understanding that there are some Christians who believe in what's called um, uh, living above sin or, or total sanctification where now you don't ever sin anymore. And I don't see any biblical, they might be right, but I don't see any biblical indication that that ever happens. And um, I mean, so, it's logically possible, yeah. but not not likely. So I think you should probably yeah, it's not try, likely for either one of us, for sure. Yeah, I, th yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think you should go ahead and understand that you're, yeah. you're going to probably struggle and wrestle with God for the rest of your life. But bend the knee now. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to know. So, yeah, I, I'm going to I, I want to see more holiness in ministry either. But my standard for that. And my ideas about that are probably different than a lot of typical evangelicals because some things that they think are horrible sins, I don't even think are sins at all. But some things that, but there are certain things that I think are sinful that they would too. But I, I'm just saying I don't know what sins you're talking about. But like, I mean, 
I, I, I typically, okay, what are they Ten Commandment type things first, you know, or, or then then you go like to other, you know. I think he's got it. You're right. But, but if you're talking about, man, I said the S word every single day. Yeah, I don't even think you sinned. But but and depending on the context and that you said it, I, like uh, if you said a cuss word, I'm like, oh, then yeah, you're fine. But all right, five dollars. Thank you so much, Charles. If someone's interested in apologetics, wants to look into getting a degree in philosophy to help with that, where's the best place to start looking for a degree in philosophy? Trinity College of the Bible and Theological. Yeah, but Seminary I think they mean a philosophy of religion. I think degree. they mean. I mean, obviously, yes, we want to, everyone to know about. Trinity, Trinity Sim.edu. We there have a screen. philosophy of religion But degree. I think he probably means if they wanted to get a secular philosophy degree to help them with this, where should they go? Okay, if not Trinity, then you should do a philosophy track at uh, Faulkner. Okay, that's a good direct answer. Yeah. All right. Um, and and, and it's the philosophy track of their great books program, by the way. Do real philosophy. Don't do like the philosophy degree at some university somewhere. We're like getting close. I'm, I'm kind of skipping down to the, okay, here we go. Um, f- uh, okay. Oh, wow. We got SEKs. Um, thank you for that. We super get those chat. every week, don't we? Yeah, I, yes. And I so appreciate super that. Nice. Um, Who is uh, the 12th apostle? You take that one. Yeah. Well, the simple answer is I don't know. Yeah. Um, the 12. So, so the twelve. So some people say that. What does Steve Gregg say? Some people say that Matthias is it Matthias? I think it was Matthias that that replaced Judas, and then we do, we don't hear too much, and so maybe Paul is actually. But here's the thing: ultimately, I don't know. But one thing to remember is that the twelve also. In that case, it seems like, um, so the twelve became a term for these initial followers of Jesus, and then the, the apostles that became like the name of it, the 12. So even if you see a place where it's not exactly 12, because maybe at the moment there's not 12, it's still okay to call them the 12 because the 12 was understood to refer to that close-knit group. Um, so which one specifically? I'm not sure that it matters. I don't really know. I th- Yeah, uh, Paul, I, I, I don't know. I'm happy with Paul being the 12th apostle yeah. and, the, and the tossing of lots for Matthias is just kind of man's they're they're fumbling about with yeah you know versus yeah. god's man i i like that so if i'm i'm 49% i don't know no i take that back i'm 50 no i'm 60% i don't know i'm 20% paul and 20% don't care okay jim amberg thank you for being here just got here what did i miss well let's go ahead and start over go back to the top of the list we'll start it all over just for jim but, <laughs> no way uh, <laughs> we're like two hours and we got to get off here nobody's gonna watch this for two hours because mike winger is is here yeah start i mean not here mike winger has started we can step on um, winger cameron stepped on us yes that's a stadia controller hervey schmervy um yeah to play that video game that you just started playing with andy yep. that you think i'm gonna play that i'll never will i don't think you will yeah that's all the question i don't see any more questions well i don't see any more questions thanks guys it's been a whole lot of fun we've really enjoyed it um hope that you will go check out whatever winger is talking about today and it's gonna be great you know why it's gonna be great go subscribe to adam oh. coleman's uh True ID Apologetics, yeah. and get an awesome t-shirt, military green t-shirt. But before you do that, subscribe to Sharing Radio Extra. Yeah. And if you haven't subscribed to us, 
then subscribe to yeah, us. Do that. But here's another thing. Winger's talking Winger's talking about why why does he affirm any of the five points of Calvinism today? So that should be actually a pretty exciting one for you. Okay, we'll see you later. And I think I'll throw downtown up there today. But we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. You haven't been silenced, Provisionism 101. So glad that you're here. Yeah, Kevin. He's a good debater, too. And he's a Trinity student, and you should go subscribe to his YouTube channel. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Paul did way more than 50% of the apostles, am I right? Uh, we have no way of knowing. Um, I, th- to think that we have a lot of information of what Paul did because of the second half of Acts and all of his epistles doesn't mean that he did way more than 50% of the apostles. It just means we know way more about what Paul did than we did the other apostles. So I don't, I don't know that I would say that. It seems like, you know, James was a pretty busy guy, so...